I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Goner. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome back to Uncover Your Magic. Oh, today you are going to really enjoy my guest. His name is Corey Mascara. And I was introduced to him by a friend who has been taking his classes, gosh, I think for the last couple of years. And she kept telling me what a difference he was making in her life and that I should interview him, which I encourage all of you to do. If you, if there's someone that you think I should interview, please reach out because I didn't know about Corey until she told me about him. So gosh, what a amazing rabbit hole to go down. I looked at his Instagram and then I ordered his book, Stop Missing Your Life. And then I went to his podcast. It's called Practicing Human. And it's all down our alley and you're going to love him. And it's going to be his story that will, I think, kind of shift your perspective on discipline and dedication to really finding finding your purpose. He studied in a monastery in uh, Burma for six months. He did silent. He was meditating for 14 hours a day, like sleeping three hours, barely eating. <laughs> I mean, he'll. we're going to get into that. But yeah, so when I started learning about him, I really recognized what he would bring to the show and open your eyes to how people um, really dedicate themselves to finding their purpose and going to that extreme, which is amazing. And you're going to love him. He's absolutely adorable. But before I bring Corey on, I want a, f- a few things. First Monday call, uh, last Monday's call was amazing with Kate Rossi. If you haven't, if you didn't get to go and it's on my YouTube channel, please go watch it. It was magical and she's amazing. And I will have her on again. She's become my dear friend and everyone was just in awe. So go back and check out that call if you missed it. And we're going to have our first Monday call next month, March 4th at five o'clock Pacific with Dr. Pontea. She's been on the podcast twice. She will be the guest speaker. She's going to surprise us and delight us. I told her just bring her magic and I know she will. You will absolutely love her. She's a local San Diegan too. So she will be coming to our retreat next time as well. So would love for you to meet her. So come connect with me. If you haven't been on a Monday call, just connect and I will send you the Zoom link. And the other ones that have been just use the same Zoom link as we have in the past. And then I also have had a a lot of people reaching out to me because I do talk about my automatic writing a lot on this, on these intros because my automatic writing has just completely transformed my life. And I've, and it's transformed, period. 
it's crazy how it is opening up this channel in my mind. And you really, people are asking me like, how do you know it's real? How do you know it's not you making it up? And all the, you know, the question, the questioning, it's just, it's part of opening up that intuition and trusting. And I want to teach people kind of how I do it. And they all want to get on a call. So I'm going to announce that now. We're going to do that the second Monday of March which is the 11th, and we're just going to do it at five o'clock. So if you want to come to that, please do. We're going to, I don't know where that's going to lead, but I just wanted to answer people's requests on asking me how to how I automatic write. And so we're just going to spend an hour, bring your journals, and I'm going to teach you kind of my way of doing it. And we can share, if you if you automatic write and want to come be part of that and share yours, I'd love that too. So that's the 11th. And then I have this new retreat (laughs) that we are, we created March 10th. It's a mother daughter. If you don't have your, you don't have your daughters and you just are a mother and want to come, please connect with me. Uh, My girls after being at the retreat January 21st at, at Zlack last month were inspired when they got home and asked if we could create one for their friends and their moms. And I said, oh my gosh, what a great idea. So they started reaching out to their friends and their moms and I got a list and I couldn't believe the, they were pretty much all yeses, which is showing me again that this is wanted. These are things that people are desiring in their life. These connections, especially with children and parents as you know, that's my um, passion but connection, like my word for the year. And I'm creating that. I'm going to be creating that. Um, my goal is maybe every couple months set a new retreat connection after March 10th, Sunday. So connect with me and I'll give you all the information about that. Uh, don't wait because like I last time we have a limited space <laughs> and I already have a lot of people that signed up. So please connect sooner than later. If you're at all interested, it'll be in San Diego. And my new adventure is with Olgita Woods. You heard her last on 188, the episode with her son, Max. He is seven years old and is, she's just raised him and I, her and I got together. She came down to San Diego and we, we started kind of brainstorming because she had been getting so many people reaching out to her as I have after that episode, wanting to come up with something together. And so we created a class called How to Raise Happy Children. So we just put out an episode on my YouTube channel. It will be coming out in a couple of weeks on this podcast. But if you want to get involved in that, or you know parents that are struggling with children or children struggling, like when, you know, I have my Raising Confidence class, but we kind of wanted to do something together and share what we believe are the, you know, the magic tools that we see that have helped our children. And doing it with Olgita is, yeah, it's amazing. She's amazing. So she's a teacher. So it's just fun. So we're going to do that. So connect with me, connect other people if they want. It's like a three, we've kind of kind of go as we create it as we go. But um, it's like a three-week class that we are creating. So that's exciting. 
And other than that, thank you all again. And this podcast is growing and I couldn't be more grateful for everybody reaching out, listening and sharing these episodes with everyone and putting the reviews and subscribing and all that stuff. It's um, definitely something that I am so grateful for. And I hope that when you do reach out and DM me and I do respond back, you know how much that all means to me. So with that, I know you are going to enjoy Corey Mascara today. And when you do and you reach out to me, please let me know what your takeaways were. It's always interesting to hear. Like last week, I had so many people reach out to me after they listened to Kate Northrup. Um, she's her Their takeaways from her episode was um, fascinating. All right. It's all about connection. And you know how much I love connection. So connect with me and enjoy this beautiful episode with Corey Mascara. Welcome, Corey. Thanks, Ashley. Hey, everyone. (laughs) Oh, Corey, like I said before I hit record, it's been just an absolute joy to read your book, Stop Missing Your Life, going down, you know, Instagram, reading your website, looking at listening to YouTube. I love it's just so fun when, when I know that I get to, I knew like a couple months ago, we had this planned and I get ready like a few days before and I'm just like absorbed you. (laughs) I know you. And it's just, you know, when someone comes into your life, like you to me, and I know that there's a reason, and I know that I'm supposed to learn something from you. There's, there's definitely a higher, higher purpose in this connection. And I look at people like that, especially having a podcast or reading a book and like, what does this book come into my life for? And what I learned from you was thinking about like where you started and your childhood, like, you know, there was not a, it wasn't a struggling childhood. You had a beautiful family, beautiful childhood. Mm -hmm. And it came to this place where I want you to start is this girlfriend in college when she, because I feel like I have a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old and I'm thinking of their childhood as I reflect on yours and thinking of mine and what I did as a mom to change what I thought would be a better, you know, like in my mind, right? Like, well, I didn't have that, so I'm going to give them this. Or I know I'm programming them. I was an older parent, so I was very aware of what I was like programming and zero to seven and all the things that I was getting Richard on the, you know, you gotta, you know, they have these limiting beliefs. You got to talk about, (laughs) you know, all the things. But when I look at your life and I think of how I can't wait for people to understand what you've done, I see the little breadcrumbs kind of like pointing to the direction that you've taken in your life, I guess I could say, Mm -hmm. but can you kind of go off of that, that lead? That particular breadcrumb. <laughs> yeah. It's a, an interesting story and also predictable in, in some ways. I think when a lot of people think of someone who starts a journey like I've been on, which we'll get into, but let's just say like a spiritual journey or one of wanting to understand meditation and mindfulness on a deeper level. A lot of times you might think that that person must be, they must already be spiritual inclined in that direction, or maybe there is a lot of pain and and trying to look for some relief. And as you alluded to, my journey didn't start for any particularly noble reasons. I got into meditation because I was trying to impress my college girlfriend. 
who was in the meditation. And yeah, I still, I wouldn't even call them superficial aspirations. I just wanted her to think I was cool because <laughs> I right. thought she was really cool. Mm-hmm. I was 20, I think 2021. 20, and, um, and so I, I started meditating. I put it on my wall. Like I put all my New Year's resolutions on my wall and I wanted to make sure she saw. It. And one of them was like meditate three times a week for 15 minutes. I really, I, I didn't even know how to meditate or hardly what meditation was, oh, but funny. You know, she was getting into it. And then she broke up with me about three weeks later. So there wasn't a happy ending to, uh, to meditate and get the girl storyline, mm-hmm. but the different happy ending was that the, the pain of that breakup then it was quite painful. It lasted for a while. It kind of sobered me into taking a different relationship to the meditation because it was, I was finding like the only thing that was actually giving me some relief from the pain of that. And I, I did continue, even though I started with the meditation for superficial reasons, I kept going and I was finding that there was a way to be in relationship with or be aware of the thoughts, the thoughts would come up of like, would ruminate about everything I did wrong or all the ways that I thought I was, I was stupid or I took this for granted. And what if I had only said that or done that? And I just like, my mind would be consumed by it all day long. And so I remember in the meditation, the, the basic instructions, some of them were just like, see if you could watch thoughts move through the mind like clouds passing through the sky. So I was getting used to doing that in practice and these thoughts that like seemed like they hated me or trying to ruin my life, just like, hello, thought. And it would, you know, go through my mind like a cloud passing through the sky. But there was something incredibly freeing and spacious about that. It's like, oh, I can watch a thought. And if I can watch a thought, that means there's a thought and then there's an I. And that was like the first time. I really began to make a distinction between the content of my experience and the observer of my experience. And at 21, that was just a, it was revelatory. And I I just remember then like the next weeks walking around campus, I was like, how much in my experience can I be aware of without being consumed by? Mm -hmm. And I feel sad and I'm like, oh, there's sadness here. And it wasn't disconnecting from it. I wasn't not feeling it. It was just noticing that this is an experience, but it's not the defining factor of me. And so that little doorway, that initial breadcrumb led to more breadcrumbs. And then the next one was like, well, this is making me me happier. And it's the first time I feel like I have something that is like an internal thing that I can do that is shifting my experience of myself and my life compared to, let's say, an external thing, which was most of my pursuit of happiness. Like try to pursue this and get really good at at golf, which was my thing at the time, and improve my social life and set myself up for a good job and like all of that. And this, none of that was shifting. I was just, in fact, at that point, a lot of that was shifting in a negative way. And yet I was getting more fulfilled. And so simultaneously there there was just everything kind of came to a head i was studying business we took this trip to the new york stock exchange met with this big hedge fund manager everyone said you know this is the guy this is where you want to get this is who you want to be he gave this 2 hour talk and it just sucked my soul out of my body and i just had the very clear thought of i don't know what i want to do with my life but i know i do not want to end up like this guy and granted, i 
you know, he could have been super happy, maybe just had a bad day, came out of a colonoscopy, I have no idea. But <laughs> the, the thing is that it, it triggered for whatever reason, this insight at that particular time of just like, well, if that's not what I want, then what is it that I want? And it, it kept coming down to, I want to be happy at the heart of it. I just want to be happy. And then it's like, well, how do you do that? Well, you got to figure out what that is. And how do you figure out what that is? It's like, well, I'm doing this meditation thing and that seems to be working. And that just led to another breadcrumb, another breadcrumb, another breadcrumb where I found out that, you know, meditation is, is a thing and there's science behind it and there's ways to study it and you can go deeper into it and you can do trainings and you go on retreats and there's not just meditation. There's like psychology and the psychology of happiness. And it just opened up this whole world for me that, um, was beautifully rich and continues to be beautifully rich. Uh, it was the beginning of my my journey of understanding myself and what it might mean to find fulfillment and contentment in this life. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so when I'm thinking of what what's coming next in your story, I'm thinking you're you're now at this moment that you're picking, a, you're making a choice, you know, there's choice points in life, right? This is a choice point in Corey's life where he's, he's not going to do the New York stock exchange. That's not fulfilling. He doesn't, you know, there's no, no draw to that. And now he's realizing meditation is what fulfills him. So I understood, like, when I heard your story about you being like into golf you were like, I didn't just have one coach. I had like 10 coaches because yeah. it would be like, you know, I would always think someone else knew something better or I'd learned something different from another, you know, it was always, you were always searching to be better. Mm -hmm. So when I hear the next part of this story at this choice point is when you decide to go to Burma, I need to understand where you, because there's 10 day silent meditations. There's not the six month where you go and go to a monastery and study and do what, 12 to 14 hours of meditation. Can you go to where that choice point was where you're yeah. like having to decide, like, I'm going to do like talking to your mom and dad. Guess what? I went to now I'm going to go to Burma and be a monk. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about that? Yeah. So this is where uh, Corey's, Corey's uh, sincere interest in meditation intersects with Corey's very aggressive type A personality. So I went on my first five-day retreat my junior year of college. I went with my mom and I went with my brother in upstate New York at a place called Omega. And it wasn't a silent retreat, but we were doing a decent amount of meditation. We were talking a lot and like a place to share your inner world and have it be met and heard. And, and it was really powerful. And I remember coming out of that experience for some reason, just having this feeling of like, I want to find the most intense version of this. There was an association with intensity and reward. And like, all right. So we were meditating like a couple hours each day here. Like, what would happen if you just did that all day long? And I didn't really know. I was hearing, like, people were sharing stories about monks and meditation teachers and proverbs and quoting the Tao Te Ching. And I was, like, gathering this stuff in my 21-year-old mind. And the mental representation of it was, like, 
oh, go live on a mountain like for a year in silence. That's what I, what I thought it was going to be. It's kind of like the, my version of eat, pray, love. And, it, and I, I share that because it's really important to know that, um, the intention was as vague as that. I want to separate myself from everything that's currently bringing me comfort and sense of identity. And I just want to go deep in my inner world. But it was like, sit on a mountaintop somewhere. And obviously it can't do that, but it, it started with that. And then over the next year, because of that intention and because I, I kept filtering things through that intention, you know, I would, I would meet a, a teacher where I went to undergrad at Allegheny College and here he was in a meditation. He said, Oh, you should check out this other teacher who runs a meditation class at Allegheny. Like, didn't know that. So then I would meet with him and I tell him these aspirations and, and he would say, it's like, well, you could go to places in the Northeast and, you know, you can work there and you can meditate and do yoga. I was like, that's getting closer, but it's not quite it. Like, I think I want to go out of the country. I feel like if it's in the country and it's not hard enough, or if it's in the country, I might leave. Like, I just need to really separate myself from all of this. So I just kept following that thread. And when, after I graduated, I went on my first seven day silent retreat in, in Barry, Massachusetts. And this is more along the lines of what you were talking about, where you have these like 10 day silent retreats. So you could go on, you meditate a bunch. I went on that one with my dad, who was interested in, in meditation. And it was there that I spoke to them and I, I said, Hey, like I, I have this desire to go really deep in this. What do you recommend? And, and they gave me a list of monasteries. In Burma, they said, if you really want it to be intense, you should go to Burma. And if you really want it to be like a lot of meditation, a lot of intensity, you should go to this monastery right here, which was called uh, Pandita Rama with the teacher, the late Sayada Upandita, who I didn't realize at the time was notorious around the world for being one of the most revered and respected and powerful meditation teachers, but also having a, a very demanding form of teaching. And so six months later, I was on a plane to Burma, got a meditation visa, a special visa so you could stay for long periods of time. Hmm. But the choice point really was, I'm getting a lot out of this. I know I want to go deeper. I know I probably won't have many points in my life to do this. I have a bunch of college loans. I can defer them for maybe six months a year. If I'm doing 15 minutes a day and it's going well, what would happen if I were doing 15 hours a day? And the prospect of that really excited me. That's like something, like when I think about that, people have a struggle with doing three minutes a day, you know, and then, but in your mind, like knowing what's in your soul to crave that, to crave more. And that, that call that you got to just go and, and to just dive so deep into that, into your soul. Like, are you searching because you know that feeling of the shorter term meditations, it's just, it's really fulfilling you. Like you just want to, what is it that you it's feel like it's going to give you more? Of? Yeah, it's a great question. Because you had mentioned earlier that like I had found my fulfillment through meditation or that that was fulfilling me. And it's kind of that and also not because it wasn't like the meditation was giving me some relief from my experience, but it wasn't like I just loved going into meditation. I mean, I was still in college. I was, I was throwing parties. Like I, my life while there was, yeah, I went through a particularly hard point, like junior year, 
there's a lot of things I was still like seduced by in my external world. There were a lot of shiny things and I was 21 years old and enjoying it. So like sitting down on the cushion to meditate, it wasn't like I just want to spend all my time doing this. There were lots of times where I would set out most of the time I'd set out to do 30 minutes you know, in my room. And then I'd be like, oh, this is boring. <laughs> and like 10 minutes <laughs> later, I would leave. Huh. So there's a bunch of interesting things there. One, it was like the identity of being someone who meditated was compelling to me initially. So there was okay. like some ego desires that were taking me deeper. And then also it was the promise of what the practice seemed to be making, which is that like, if you do this more and more, your mind, you will soften the edges of your mind's relationship to your life. All of the prickliness of like, I don't like this, or I really want all this, that push-pull relationship and that incessant, never-ending treadmill that we seem to be on of just like, once I get that, then I'll be happy. Oh, it's not that. Once it's the next thing, more, more, more. I was already seeing enough of that to be disillusioned by it. And the meditation seemed to be a promise like to actually teach you to cultivate a quality of contentment and equanimity with what's in front of you without losing aspiration. And I said, all right, that's compelling. But it was still, it was still hard. It was still a practice. It was not giving me momentary fulfillment when I did it. So these short meditations that kind of inspired this deeper thing, I was just getting enough of a glimpse to know there's something here, but I haven't even scratched the surface of what's here. Mm -hmm. And I was reading books about it was like non-self, that the self is an illusion and we're all one and and like the ego versus true nature. And, and I was just like, what are these words? I don't get them. I can't feel that in my experience, the all one experience, but I'm seeing it all over the place. So people must, they must know something I don't know. And I figured if I put myself in an environment that forced me to do the work and that made it difficult to leave, that I would come to those understandings myself. So it was still like the aspiration of what the practice could be, not the momentary fulfillment it was giving me, which, uh, yeah, is a distinction for whatever it's worth. Wow. I mean, it just, that whole mind, your mindset into that, going to that level is just incredible to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the dedication, the discipline, all the things. It's just like, it's very far and few between that you find somebody that has that mental capacity that actually is going to go do that for six months. Because listening to your story when you get there and what you do, which I want you to explain, takes it to the next level. Like I can't imagine what you, barely eating, barely sleeping. So explain, kind of explain that because I, I think people need to understand it's not just going to sit and meditate with the monks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It kind of is that, and it's also a lot harder than it sounds. But did I, you know it was yeah. going to be that hard? Or what? No, like, no, no. Okay. No, I don't. I don't think there. I think even just for any silent retreat, it's hard to understand the difficulty of just being with yourself and being with everything that comes up and intentionally turning toward it and not turning away and not having your usual coping mechanisms of going on your phone or lots of food that you might like, or just like walking around and sightseeing or distracting yourself. 
just like you go into a pressure cooker. And if you've spent a life not looking inward or actively using a future orientation to suppress being in the present moment because the present moment carries wounds from the past, then there's going to be a lot that can come up when you start doing that work. So uh, I did not know how intense it would be. I did know the intensity of the schedule, which was you wake up at 3 a.m., you go to bed somewhere around 9.30 or 10. You have to do a minimum of 14 hours of meditation a day, which includes, it's an hour of sitting meditation and then an hour of walking meditation, which is this like very slow walking back and forth, like 10 feet in one direction and then turn around 10 feet in the other direction. So it's not like a walking around the monastery and looking at the birds. It's like, right, it kind of looks like a zombie walk. Your eyes are... What is the purpose of that short? Like, why can't you walk around and look at the birds? Because it has to be super, because it, no distraction. It can, yeah, it can easily become a sightseeing adventure if you uh, focus too much on what could be seen. And mm-hmm. it's not to dismiss the enjoyment of seeing things and looking around. And it's just, it's a different practice than than meditation. It can be meditative, like you can make, like going on a beautiful walk and looking at the trees. You can do that with awareness, with spaciousness, with mindfulness, with, with gratitude. And that can be a form of practice. In the early stages, though, it can be very easy for us to just look around and then go, Oh, there's a bird. Oh, I love birds. Oh, I should put a bird cedar on my house. Oh, wouldn't my house be so much better? Oh, my house is such a mess. Oh, I hate living around. <laughs> Right. And that can right. happen. Right. Right. So they, they call that, um, in Buddhism, they call that papancha, just the mental proliferation of the mind. One thought leads to another and leads to another. So you, you're trying to reduce those distractions because it's just, it's hard enough to do the work. And also it's the recognition that it's like, yes, it's very pleasant and it, it it's probably nicer. It is nicer to want to look around and look at the sky than it is to be attuned to just one foot stepping after another. But it's also the recognition that like the work we're doing is to try to understand cultivating a certain quality of peace and contentment that is not constantly being fueled with an arrangement of external variables that fits everything you want. And so if you just keep following of like, oh, I want that. Ah, now I have it. Now you're in this, you're getting the dopamine reward hit of the mind that says, if I just had that and then it gets it and then it gets a reward, you refuel, you're fueling that cycle over and over. And that creates more tension in the experience because now every time another desire like that arises, it carries extra tension to it because it's used to being fulfilled. Mm. So you make the practice simple. It's just like, all right, we're just going to walk back and forth. There's nowhere you need to go anyway. All we're doing is bringing the attention to the foot resting on the ground and then the next foot touching the ground. And you're using that as a form of stabilizing your awareness and your attention and your concentration. The more you do that, the less the mind goes off into that papancha of just like this thought, this thought, that thought. And the more that stabilizes, the more you begin to see just like how much of your identity, how much your sense of being yourself is not actually yourself. It's mm-hmm. your sense of being your thoughts and your emotions and your pains. And it takes some time, kind of like if you were to shake up a snow globe and you look in it, just like, yeah, it's just snow. I just see 
cloud snow. It's like, well, let's actually just put it on a stable surface for a bit. And then the, the snow starts to settle. And then you can actually see the image of, of what is actually being featured there. Oh, there's a house. And oh, there's a little person standing. Oh, there's a little light lamp. And so it, it becomes the same thing. We, we use these seemingly mundane things of just like, all right, focus on the foot or focus on the breath, where every normal person would go like, why would I want to do that? Instead of like looking at, at the sky or eating a cookie or like something else that's enjoyable or listening to music. And the whole thing is like, yes, all of that stuff is wonderful, but we often need to put it aside to actually let some of the noise and the distraction settle to see what's going on beneath the surface. Who is the being behind all of the doing? And so as that concentration deepens, mind starts to settle and soften and you get in touch with this, this, place within you that is not your thoughts. It's not your emotions. It's not your pain, your suffering, your story. And in that tradition, they like they call it awareness or like your true nature. And it, it's this the backdrop of your experience. And it's spacious. It's calm. It's radiant. It's inherently loving, compassionate. And you get to dwell there more and more and more. And you start to see just, oh, so much of my life is just driven around these thoughts that I have about myself and not being good enough. Or once I get that, then I'll be happy. And, and that is just happening subconsciously. And I've just been on a hamster wheel my whole life. Then you also get to see dwelling in that space that it's not like you no longer do anything. Cause a lot of people fear like, well, I'm just going to go meditate and like not do anything in the world. No, unless you choose to. I mean, you could go to monasteries or become a hermit and you know, more power to you. But what this is doing is just connecting us to a different place within ourselves that can motivate the action we're doing in the world. And how different would it be to like build a life or a career or a relationship, not from the place in your mind that's going, I need to do this because I'm unworthy. And once I get that, then I'll be fulfilled. Right. right. Where most of us are building our lives from versus the place in you that already knows you're okay, you're safe, you're loved, and you're good. And then like, what would it be like to build a relationship from that place where you're not demanding the other person to be a certain way for you in order for you to feel okay or incessantly having to work 80 hours a week in order to fill this, this inner emptiness that's like subconsciously tied to trying to impress your parents so they think you're great. Right. Right. And so when, when that's driving the show, the outcome we get in our life will reinforce some of those wounds. And when we're connected to something deeper, then the extension of that and the life that gets built around that continues to invite that place within us out. Right. When you're at the beginning of this six-month journey, how long does it take you to get to that place quickly and you live in that 14 hours and that one where you've trained yourself to really not control your thoughts, but to really be at, be within you, be within that spot or whatever you call it. Yeah, in that the language space. is so tricky. <laughs> I, know. I know. In that space. How long does that, does it take you a while to get there or what? Yes and no. So I had some massive insights, beautiful life-changing insights within my first few days of being there. Like what? Give me one. The first one was the distinction between primary pain and secondary pain. 
I was seeing that there was a ton of physical pain when I first got there. Pain in my knees, pain in my back. It felt like electricity moving through my body. It, it was just awful. We were sleeping on mattresses that you could squeeze between your finger and feel the bone on the other side. Not sleeping a bunch and just the austerity of, of the retreat and the amount of meditation creates a lot, can create a lot of physical pain. And so I was just like consumed in the pain for the first handful of days, first week. And, um, to the point where I almost left. Right. And I, I hit this point where I was like, all right, well, if you're going to leave, you could leave, but let's just like look, see if we can try to just be present with the pain. Cause the te- my teacher kept saying, just be present. Just with be, be present. present. <laughs> that was this whole thing. <laughs> the three words. Like, yeah. I was like, dude, I'm doing nothing but being present. I can't go anywhere else. I don't have my phone. It's just, I'm present with the pain all day long. But when I looked closer, I wasn't doing the work of being present. What I was doing was primarily ruminating about how much I hated the pain. And I saw this like very interesting, insidious mental loop where the pain would arise, feel the physical pain in my back. And then I would notice the thought arise and the thought would be like, oh, here comes the pain again. How long is this going to last? I hate this. I hate being here. No one else looks like they're struggling as much as me. And then that thought would trigger an emotion of anger or feeling like I was feeling victimized by my experience or I just sad. And then those emotions I could feel were actually making the physical pain worse, which was a very interesting thing to see. Like the emotional body was impacting the physical body. And then that would make the thoughts worse and more emotions. So it's just like this downward spiral. And I saw, I was like, all right, well, as long as I'm going to be here, I can't impact the physical pain. I can't shift the physical pain. That's going to have, I can adjust my posture, but it seems like it's going to be here. What I can do is shift how I relate to the physical pain. I can shift maybe the thoughts around it. And if I can do that, then I could shift how those thoughts are impacting the emotions and the emotions are impacting the pain. And that was the first awareness of primary pain versus secondary pain. The primary pain is the pain of life that we really can't do anything about. So loss of a loved one, loss of a job, difficult things that happen that we didn't want to happen. These are primary pains. The secondary pain are the, the thoughts and the emotions that we layer on top of it. Why me? Why did God do this to me? This, how long is this going to last? going to be here forever. This always happens to me. And so seeing that very intimately in my experience, just like this is an example of primary pain and this is an example of me caking on secondary pain. And that when I do that, it's as if the whole of suffering becomes greater than like the sum of its parts. You know, it wasn't just like primary pain, one, secondary pain, one, one plus one equals two. You, you swirl them together. It becomes like three, four or five. Right. And so that's where I, I just practice like, all right, cool. The pain is here. Can I just be with the sensations of the pain? And what is the sensation? All right. It feels like pins and needles in my back. It's throbbing. And like that would happen. And I'd notice the tendency to pain to squeeze me up into the mind. And my mind would want to go, yeah, I hate that pain. So, all right. Just notice the thoughts. I thought like a cloud passing through the sky and just back to the raw sensation. And the sensation itself wasn't inherently pleasant. I definitely liked being without that sensation more than I like being with it. But I saw that there was a ton of extra pain and suffering that was being created through the thoughts and the emotions around it. And then I could actually turn up or down how much I was suffering based on how I was relating to the experience. Right. And so that, that happened within the first, you know, the first week of being there. 
as an example of like significant insights that can arise until the time where I had like very steady moment to moment presence and awareness where I felt like I was dwelling in that the majority of the day, that was closer to like five months, four and a half, five months. Now I was getting a lot closer along the way, but it's very hard to maintain that level of consistency throughout the day even in a monastery where that's all you're doing. So it it takes a while for the mind to settle in in that place. And I I say that hopefully not to discourage all of us listening, but to hopefully just like cut ourselves some slack because I don't dwell on that space all day long. My partner and I get into arguments. I like stuff. I get emails that I don't like. I get off track. I get consumed in my phone. It's just like, this and and being in real life is a lot harder in in many ways than being in a monastery. There's so right. many things pulling at our attention. While there's a certain austerity and difficulty to the practices there, and it's like a different pain and and like suffering there than I might experience here and outside of it. There's a whole host of other challenges that you don't have to contend with at all while you're in there. Right, and so, um. I, I, it's why I, I have a ton of respect for people doing this work in real life. And I, I even respect myself more trying to do this work in real life rather than kind of just fleeing back to monastic life, which is not to dismiss those who commit their lives to it. I, people often view that as a cop out and I don't take that orientation. I, I think you need people in the world who are, are just going into the inner experience to understand the depth of it and be able to share that with others and, and radiate that to others. It's just not my particular trajectory. In this. Right. When did you start to realize oneness and why we're here on this earth and why we, our souls chose to inhabit this human body? Like what kind of went through your head when did that start to make, like, oh, I get the oneness. I understand mm. why I'm here. Yeah. So I think some of those questions are still above my pay grade in terms of why exactly we're here. Actually, I definitely don't know that one at all. Like why we end up on this human plane and in these bodies that feel pain and pleasure and and why they die. And then like all of that, I, I still have no idea who started this, why it started, where it comes from, where it's going. What, and, and what's cool in the meditation traditions, like is Buddhism as, as one example is they don't actually occupy themselves with that question too much. It's actually not relevant. They kind of describe it as, um, you know, if you were to get shot in the leg with an arrow and you look down, it's like, Oh, there's an arrow in my leg. You wouldn't. You wouldn't start thinking about, wait, before we take this arrow out, we have to know who made the arrow, where the arrowhead came from, who shot the arrow. It's like, no, there's an arrow. Let's figure out how to take it out. And so where and why all of this is here and why we embody these bodies, I'm not fully sure. But there's a lot you learn by paying attention. And one thing that, like, yeah, you, you start to see like that oneness, the sense of oneness is that when you're not so occupied in your own thoughts and your own cravings and your own idea of where you're going and what you need to get and who you need to be and how you need to protect yourself, when the system has some, some space and uh, like some safety to actually do some of this work and step aside from that, that place within you that we've been talking about, like true nature or awareness itself, 
has an inherent interconnectedness that is hard to describe. I found it very hard to describe even after experiencing, but I, I had a lot of experiences and one very significant one around month four and a half, five when I was there where just my sense of myself, a sense of any sort of separation just completely evaporated. Hmm. And it was just, I was sitting on this little bridge overlooking a, a muddy pond and I just remember feeling completely in communion with all of it. There was no separation. And the the extension of that was just a, a deep contentment, a deep space, deep peace, and a deep compassion. And um and a just seeing like the sense of myself, that small sense of myself, just it became everything. Hmm. I don't dwell in there nonstop. I don't dwell in there to that extent hardly at all, unfortunately. Um, the, the glimpsing of it is, is a strong memory and I'm closer to that space more than I was before that. It's hard when you're in the world and you're running a business and you're right. your parent and it's hard to be, have total non-self when you also have CoreyMascara.com. It's just like self.com. It's like also <laughs> <Right>. non-self. <laughs> so, but all of that can be blended into it. And that was the, it was also the beginning of understanding that, yeah, it's one thing to see those spaces of what would be called non-duality that like they're at the heart. Maybe there's no separation. There is that oneness at the level of the human, you being in a body, me being in a body. There is separation. And on this plane of reality, we have to navigate that separation. And you're going to have certain needs. I'm going to have certain needs. I would need to put up boundaries. You need to put up boundaries. And so some of that, this is where you can get what's called spiritual bypassing. When you taste that oneness or you think that that's what you're supposed to have all the time, you end up trying to perform not having any needs and you know you just go to the PTA meeting and you're working out a conflict and you know it's just the person's just like I think we all just need to be calm and not be so triggered and just like that person's probably pissed and they're suppressing their anger so there's a role and, and this is like what I find to be the hardest work of like how do you honor that place in you that is spacious and connected and perhaps has the truth of all being interconnected while also honoring the realities of having aspects of you that do are very much separate. And so to go back to your question, like the arising of those experiences of non-self and oneness and kind of like the purpose of everything, I had, I was glimpsing a lot of that early on in the retreat, you know, you could go on a 10 day retreat, you could have a, a regular meditation practice for 10, 20, 30 minutes a day and have glimpses of this. You don't even have to meditate and you people have glimpses of like that interconnectedness. So there's different ways to get that. But it really started to, started to get more entrenched the longer I went on. And the one thing that I thought was interesting that seems to characterize this plane of reality Right. From the, the perspective of like, why do we come in to this form and, and this reality? Like, what's the purpose of it all? Again, I don't know the exact specifics of it, but I know one thing that seems to characterize it 
is that there's a desire, an innate desire to see things more clearly. There's a reward for understanding more clearly. We may resist that initially. We might have some very dense conditioning that kind of just wants to drown out with alcohol or substances, and it might seem like we don't want to see clearly. That's just a resistance to the initial pulse of pain that we would probably feel when we turn toward ourselves. But the actual experience of having understanding of why we do something, the experience of seeing that all everything is impermanent, arising and passing away, the experience of seeing that you're not your thoughts, you're not your emotions. There's inherent reward just to those insights. It's called the happiness of insight in meditation tradition. It's like, Mm. there's something about that that's a reward unto itself. Why is that? Why is like growth and, and the pulse to expand and to see more clearly? I'm not sure, but it does seem to be something that characterizes this, this plane of reality. And, and if, if we just follow it, it will pull us into my experience, like different lessons that are here for us to learn and into relationships that we might have to work something out in and into like another pattern that needs to be played out and worked through. Right. Gosh, I could ask you more and more, but I want to get to the, I want to get to um, when you got home and you were having dinner with your mom and dad and your dad said, okay, now it's, what are you going to do to get, let's get, you have to go to work. Like you have to make money. So I think what's, what I love about this part of your, your story is I saw how this six months you came back and you still had that, like, you didn't react, but you were aware of that. So go there because the, a lot of your work, we're going to talk about the, the pillars of being mm-hmm. present because I want to explain that. And I also, yeah, some mindfulness and all that stuff. So can we, yeah. can we go there? Yeah, sure. That was the, the, one of the first nights or first three nights when I got home. I was still living at home. And, um, yeah, as you said, my dad he said it in a nice way, but in like in, with some of his anxiety of just like, I want to make sure my, my son doesn't still think he's a monk living <laughs> in a monastery. He's like in the real world and you can't live under this roof forever. Like important things, but it just, it was said in a way of just like, all right. So like, how are you going to figure out how to make money now? That it just like triggered my 13 year old rebellious self that was just like, don't tell me what to do, dad. I can do what I want. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> and I was able to, to watch, right? Those thoughts move through. And before I probably would have collapsed into right. the thoughts and the emotions and maybe said something, but I, I had the space to be more grounded and open and, that space of just noticing, all right, those are thoughts. This is a reaction. There's like a cause and effect. Dad said something, it hit something in me that created an emotion. Those emotions created more thoughts, which created more emotions, and it wants to inspire action. Can I just hold it, like watch the movie screen of all of this happening, relax around it, and then respond more intentionally, which you know have been able to do much better since then or with those skills. So it was also the recognition that like, hey, it's one thing to do this work in a monastic setting where most things are taken care of for you and there's no familiar triggers and no familial triggers as well. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to do it in a real world in relationship with family and family 
knows how to push buttons the most because they put those buttons there to begin with. (laughs) Right, exactly. So when we go to, you started teaching in a yoga, your friend's yoga studio. So she, so we start to like, oh, I'm a teacher. I want to teach mindfulness, presence. You start getting people to teach. Yeah. Um, continue yeah, there. there. And then, and then I want, yeah, go. Yeah. <laughs> wherever you want to take, right. We could go through the whole storyline, but yeah, came back and started teaching. Had two one-on-one clients. It all happened very fortuitously met some person while I was in the waiting room at a chiropractor's office. He heard me talking to someone at the front desk about my experience. He asked if I taught meditation. I said, I don't yet, but I can. And he became my first student, brought another person. And then things just slowly progressed from there. And um, yeah. So we talk about face, the the four Mm -hmm. pillars. And then I, when you talk about, so the interesting thing when I was reading that, as much as you talk about meditation and what what the benefits and what you've learned um, being a monk, you don't tell people you don't have to meditate. Mm. That's not a big, you know, that's not a big thing in you. Like you're not out there saying, you know, this is what's going to, you know, you're going to have to do this many minutes a day. You don't go there. And that's what I think is so fascinating. Yeah. But I think these pillars are part of that explanation. Yeah, I don't. I don't feel too evangelical with it. The practice is there. And if someone wants it, it's a great resource. And it's a huge part of my teaching still. But I I keep a pretty open and inviting space for that. These four pillars uh, that uh, you're referencing are, I talk about in my book, like the, the four foundations of presence, of focus, allowing, curiosity, and embodiment. And when I tune into a moment of presence, these are the qualities that, that come up as like foundational for what it means to hold a moment of your life in a way that's, that's spacious and attuned and grounded and receptive. And so uh, focus just speaks to our ability to have some stability in our mind, the, the capacity to be attuned to what's happening on an inner uh, and outer level. Most of us, again, we're, we're kind of just like a uh, ping pong ball bouncing from one thing to another. So getting that stability allows us to actually stay rooted in our life as it's unfolding without just kind of going with wherever the wind's taking us. But you can be, you can be focused like here and still be maybe like resistant to what's arising. So that's where the A comes in, allowing. And this speaks to a certain inner spaciousness that we're taking in relationship to our experience. Where it's easy, especially if we've been through some difficult things, to really close down to life, to close down our hearts. But when we close down to the painful things, we also close down to what's good and we end up numbing ourselves and that can lead to more depression or more anxiety. So a moment of presence is a willingness to be with the truth of what's here, a softening into the truth of what's here, which is the allowing. The allowing was, uh, it was so interesting when I was reading the book, was the story of the Zen farmer. Oh, yeah. I had just gotten a, um, my daughter had a um, college, she's on the rowing team and they ended up cutting the crew team like after she had applied and got on and, you know, and, and she had written me this letter 
saying my biggest lesson in 2023 was that everything for me, everything, you know, everything in my life, my successes, my failures. And it was just like, wow, Paige, that's amazing. But this is before she got the, her college rug got pulled out from under her. Right. But she, I said, Paige, you almost, you wrote that. It reminded me of the Zen farmer. Someone sends me the Zen farmer poem or story. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is allowing. And I was teaching her that. And I've taught her that her whole life. Like, you know, that everything's working for you type, you know, the bottom line of that. But when I'm listening to you explain allowing, and then you relate that to the Zen farmer, good luck, bad luck, who knows? Yeah. I was like, so I said that to Paige. I was like, good luck, bad luck, who knows where you're supposed to be? You know, like it's for a reason, but it's just to live life. You know, and I think raising children with that mind that is so powerful to have that instilled in you so early in life to know that when something does feel like the, you know, it's, you know, you're like, what that happened? Like, Mm. wow, good luck, bad luck. Who knows? Yeah. I love it. Yeah. For those wondering some of the context around that, there's this story of a Zen farmer and he has a horse to till his fields. And one day the horse runs away and all the people in the village come by and they say, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. It's such bad luck. And the farmer to their surprise goes, well, bad luck, good luck, who knows? A week later, the horse comes back, but it brings another horse with it. So now he has double the help. Then all the people in the village say, wow, this is such good luck. And he goes, well, good luck, bad luck, who knows? few weeks later, the son, uh, the farmer's son is riding the back of one of the horses, trying to tame it, falls off, breaks his leg. Everyone in the village says, oh, this is such bad luck. Farmer goes, bad luck, good luck, who knows? A month later, the army's coming through town and they're conscripting all the able-bodied young men and they come across the farmer's son and they move on and everyone in the village comes by and they say, wow, this is such good luck. And the farmer's response, good luck, bad luck. Who knows? So it's this whole idea of like, in life, we just don't know what something is going to lead to. And if I were to take a snapshot of difficult things and also good things at different stages of my life, there were many, many times where I was just very wrong about what they would lead to or what I could predict they would lead to. And my 21-year-old self thought that that breakup was the worst thing that could have happened to me. Mm -hmm. And it led to... This path that has been the most rewarding thing I I could imagine for my life. Right. Um, And so you just hear these stories all the time of just like some of the most difficult things where people end up giving them new perspective or inviting them like into a conversation with their soul that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Good luck, bad luck, who knows? I love that so much. (laughs) So let's go to curiosity. Yeah, so curiosity. This is just that, like, this soft pulse of, like, leaning into our experience. There's something particularly powerful about curiosity that it still continues to reveal itself as the years go on. But it's my experience of it as an internal energy is that it's the opposite energy of fear. So fear causes us to withdraw, pull back. It presupposes danger. Curiosity invites us in, pulls us closer, presupposes safety. And there's something interesting about just like making the intention to be curious about what's coming through your experience that really shifts the orientation from one of bracing resistance 
to one of inviting and even seeing like, what might this be trying to show me? It's also the thing that kind of like pulls us a little closer to our experience, being curious when you're talking to someone or when even, even just like curious about the, the flavors of your food just brings you a little closer to your experience in a way that, um, yeah, a, a moment of presence can be characterized by. And then the last one is E for embodiment. And this is to make sure that our presence just doesn't live primarily up in our head, that we are in bodies as humans and you might be frustrated with your body or not like everything the, the body feels or experiences throughout the day in life. And yet to try to disconnect from it would be to, to suppress a lived part of your reality. And there are many people in contemplative meditation spaces who can use these practices to try to disconnect from their body. And so we have to remember like our whole experience of life is happening through the body. Our experience of joy is happening here. Our experience of fear is happening here. Our experience of needing to put up a boundary is being informed by what's coming up in the body. And so when we're looking at presence, it, we have to make sure we're not just thinking of it as this mental awareness type thing, but that the awareness extends throughout this entire organism. Yeah, I love that. I want to end on, I know you just got married. And um, in Bainbridge Island, my friends that listen from Washington, I um, was reading your post on Instagram and I had heard, you know, I've been listening, like I said, to all the podcasts I can um, about your, with Brianna, that it was five years and it was, you broke up and you've gone through a lot. How do you bring into a relationship with you? Like, what were your values that were super, really high on your list that you found in her and how that all came to this beautiful wedding? Yeah, um, we had quite a journey, but there were things in the beginning that really drew me into to Brianna. There was a way that she kind of embodied herself in in space, like when I met her at an event, and I could just feel that she didn't care what anyone was thinking about. She was just like in her own world in a really sweet way. It wasn't selfish. It was just like comfortably in herself. And I remember being very drawn to that. It didn't feel like there was a, a graspiness or wanting to be seen in a certain way. It was just, it was magnetic. And so there was something about that level of, of embodiment and attunement to her own world and comfort in her world that, that really drew me in. And there's, there's much more I could say, of course, but we, we had a wild journey of finding our way to what I would call like the truth of being together. And when I use that word truth, I, I use it to describe uh, the knowing that can come from that deeper place within us that I've been alluding to. And to me, what's characterized by that place is it's spacious, it's clear, it's not sensational. It's not trying to argue you into something or against something. It's just, there's just like this spacious knowing. And there was something deep that was pulling us into the relationship, but there was a lot of clutter. And we, you know, Brianna's seven years older than me. We had an age difference. We lived on opposite coasts. We both had different forms of growing up and, and finding ourselves and finding like how we work together and we followed the thread of that. Like anytime we'd hit something that was uncomfortable, 
we'd lean into it and try to understand what was going on and it would open up new layers and new dimensions. But there was a while where it just, it wasn't hitting that thud of knowing, that deep knowing that I especially was looking for. And anyway, so we broke up and it was the most painful thing that I'd ever gone through. And I had said, the only thing that I'm more afraid of than losing you is losing myself. And if I, if I go into this relationship from this place, like as much of me that wants to make this work, this is block that I can't figure out. And if I override it, then I will lose myself because it's the deepest thing I can access. And, and so we took space and separation. And then to condense the storyline a bit or the timeline of it, I had a really significant insight around a part of me that was kind of protecting and guarding against intimacy and commitment. Even though my mind wanted, like knew I wanted a committed relationship. I've been saying that since I was a kid. I want kids. I want to be married. Hmm. Like, I wanted that full on board. But there was some deep learning and I tracked it to a handful of experiences when I was young that just dissociated getting too close as potentially getting hurt. And, and there's like, there's something very intimate about like a committed relationship. And so like a lot of the stuff that was coming up or painful things that were coming up, instead of them being woven into just like the flow of this is what it means to be in a relationship. There was a lot of that that had the space for the highs and lows, but there were some things that just felt like that was creating this contraction in me. Mm. And anyway, that contraction was the thing that like felt blocked when I would come up against like thinking about proposing. And I watched this, this shit. Once I saw it clearly, I watched it kind of melt away. It was like this thawing mm. around my heart. And once it did, and I thought about proposing, it was like, oh, of course. It, wow. it was like a complete shift. And so we, we did a lot of work to get to a place where it was like, all right, I think we're, we're ready, but there was still this final thing for me. And then once that shifted, it was just a no brainer. And it wasn't the understanding that like, it's all going to be rainbows and unicorns. It was basically seeing the part that was afraid of kind of going in fully with someone and, and not being able to get out because not being able to get out was associated with, with pain. And, and so, that was childhood stuff. You went. Yeah, there was some childhood stuff around that. Not even super tragic or traumatic, but just some learnings in in relationship with, especially like young boys, of just like doing things that were uncomfortable to my more sensitive uh, nervous system and just feeling like, I I just want to get out of here. So Mm -hmm. there was an association with like being in discomfort and not being able to get out. Get out. That was, and it was all subconscious. For anyone who's interested in like that as an idea or where you might have parts of you that are protecting or defending, I do recommend the book, No Bad Parts by Richard Schwartz, because it, it will go into how we have these parts that develop at different stages in our life that are designed to protect us, but they can feel like the truth of us. And that's the, the distinction is that sometimes it's not the true self. It's actually a part telling you just like, hey, you shouldn't do this. So you uh, read that book while you were going through that? How- uh, yeah, 
Yeah, I did. And it was that book and some other things. Worked with a therapist for a bit and a handful of coaches. And um, it thinks it was a lot moving in the background for, for years, but things kind of like coalesced in this one moment of just like having this really big insight. And it really felt it was like a thawing out. Yeah. And um, yeah, over the next couple of weeks, I just watched it open up more and more and more. I had two things. It felt like a curse was lifted. That was the first experience of it. And people who do internal family systems that work of IFS describe like when a part steps aside, it often does feel like a curse is lifted. And it also just had the resonance of a miracle. It was like everything that I wanted to feel. I was like, oh, this is it. And the work to get there. Yeah. It was the most incredible thing I've ever experienced. And then you just call her and say, I had a miracle. Let's go. Pretty much. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot there about what happened next. But once I had that clarity, yeah, two days later, I got on a plane from Mexico to San Francisco and arranged for us to meet up. And we had a little bit of back and forth to build up. So it wasn't out of nowhere. And we'd been talking on and off during the time we were broken up. We were never fully disconnected. Like we tried. The force was there bringing us together. And it was just a lot of stuff that needed to be cleared out. But it was, and this is an important point for me, it was the willingness to walk away that, and for us to like surrender, like maybe this is not going to work, to really allow that to be the potential truth that created enough spaciousness so that that part that was in that bind didn't feel so pressured to like have to make a decision. And when it like was able to soften, that's when I could see it as a part. Right. And then reorient to it differently and and allow it to to shift. Oh, I love that. You know, to think of more people did that work before they got married, (laughs) you know, like before they did. I mean, it's just like incredible. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, incredible. Oh, Corey, I could talk to you all day. So your book, Stop Missing Your Life, your website, your classes, there's so many that are amazing. In fact, I I found you through a friend that is taking your classes. And she was showing me on her phone your app. And I go, gosh, that is so amazing what you have created. Yeah, just you've really... Like I said in the beginning, like I know I've met you, I've learned so much from you and I just appreciate this time and I know you're busy and I, and I just was so excited to uncover your magic because there's so much. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks for doing the work that you're doing and, and bringing different voices on your platform and sharing and curating. It's, it's big work to do that. And there's a lot to prepare for. However, you know, doing hundreds of interviews like this, it's a lot. So thank you. But I love it. So that's, you know, it doesn't feel like it's a lot, especially when I meet someone like you and get to read your book. And I was thinking I was the permission to be human. Mm. Wasn't that the name of the book you wanted? That's what title you wanted. I wanted to call it. Is that that more resonates with you after I heard that? Then stop missing your life because that would be like the opposite of what you're, you know, it's, it's funny, but I get why a publisher wants to make the you know, that stand out on the bookshelf, but yeah. permission to be human. You know, I love that. I love yeah. That. I was texting with my literary agent yesterday about trying to change the book title. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Which is funny. a huge, huge thing to do. Nobody ever really does, but. Huh. So yeah. it bugs you that much. Because of things like you just shared, like once you get to know the content, 
I would never say to someone, stop missing your life. Right. That's um, what I mean. It's not you. That's what I... Yeah. Right. And and there's an argument that it, like one, that it stands out and books right. maybe designed to stand out. And some people find it inviting, like, stop missing your life. I... I find it a little strong and, um, and there's enough people who have read it now who like know the essence of the book. Um, when I talk to them and I say like permission to be human, they're like, Oh, that feels right. Like yeah. It. That's what I felt too. That's funny. So but maybe it'll all, get a rebrand one good. day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're going to write another book. So yes. Yeah. I know that's coming. Soon. Anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley. Oh, you're so welcome. I appreciate this. Yeah. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Uncover Your Magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening and don't forget, always look for the magic.